as a society, we often live by what is known as conventional wisdom. And this is wisdom that has been repeated so often, oftentimes in sort of catchy little phrases, that we stop questioning it. It's just sort of accepted as knowledge that everybody agrees on, everybody believes, and everybody sort of follows. Here's some examples. You get what you pay for. Anybody ever said that? Everybody think, kind of think that? You get what you pay for. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's always darkest just before dawn. Or how about this one? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So whether it's wisdom about the wise use of money or encouragement to endure or being able to stand against verbal assault or a host of other little bits of conventional wisdom, it's all over the place. But here's the problem with conventional wisdom. No one ever stops and asks, hey, is this actually true? Is this actually wise? Because when you start to scrutinize conventional wisdom, you actually find that it's pretty shallow and actually isn't wise at all. For example, you get what you pay for. How often is that not true? <laughs> How often have you paid for something and you found that it actually wasn't worth what you paid? In fact, sometimes paying more for something isn't wise. Or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. In light of what Ian prayed this morning, Try telling that to somebody struggling from deep trauma or PTSD, deep wounds and damage. That is not conventional wisdom. How about this? It's always darkest just before dawn. Look, that's not even correct atmospherically. Like scientifically, it's correct. So whatever bit of wisdom it's trying to conjure up, just don't listen to it because it doesn't make any sense. Or sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. How often have we experienced words that cut deeper than any punch or rock or stick could ever inflict damage? The scars that words leave stay longer. And so when we scrutinize conventional wisdom, what we find is that it so often is a complete foolishness. Not wisdom, foolishness. And last week in our study in 1 Corinthians, we saw that Paul's most important concern for the church, why he was writing to this church in particular, is he wanted them to be united. They were developing cliques, they were fracturing at the seams, and he's writing to, to say, hey, you need to be united in Christ, not around particular leaders or your little theological hobby horses, but in Christ, you need to be united. Now, here's where Paul's gonna go for us this morning. That division didn't just come out of thin air. It's not like they were just sitting around one day and decided, hey, let's just divide up into cliques. That sounds like a good idea. No, there was a deeper set of beliefs and a deeper philosophy that was driving the Corinthians to do this. What they were following was a wisdom of the world. They were following a particular wisdom, a conventional wisdom, we could say, that was leading to these, this division. You see, the exalting of self that they were doing, that we talked about last week, that exalting of self was coming from the very wisdom of the world that they were listening to. They were holding on to a wisdom that claimed to be truly wise, a wisdom that gave them identity and success and power and status, a wisdom that they believed would lead them to the good life. And yet, as God's word is gonna show us this morning, this wisdom was ultimately empty 
and perishing. It was a wisdom that standed in direct opposition to the gospel. And so Paul is going to create this contrast. He's going to confront this giving into wisdom. And underneath all of the, the statements in verses 18 through 25, here's this question that sort of hangs over both the Corinthian church and hangs over us for City Church. Will you follow, will you be shaped by the wisdom of this world? Or will you, be, will you follow and be shaped by the wisdom of the cross? Will you as a part of First City Church, will we, as a First City Church, allow the cross to shape us? Or are we going to allow the wisdom of the world and all of its offers shape us? And so to get inside this passage, I want to do, I want to look at the contrast from two angles. First, I want to look at the contrast of worldly wisdom versus the cross, and then flip it around, the cross versus worldly wisdom. So let's first consider worldly wisdom versus the cross. In verse 18, Paul sets up the contrast. He sets up the battle, the wrestle, the struggle right there for us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The word of the cross, by which Paul means the message, the details, the content, the truths of the cross of Jesus, as well as the proclamation, the, the saying, the teaching, the declaring, and the living our lives underneath that message. All of that is encapsulated in the word of the cross. To those who follow the worldly wisdom, the wisdom of this world, that message, that life is folly, it's foolish. Like those who are shaped by and given over to the wisdom of the world will find not only the message of the cross, foolish, but the fact that you would declare this to other people, the, the fact that you would live your life under its authority and under its message to allow that thing to shape you, those that follow the wisdom of the world are going to find that foolish, folly. Why would you ever do something like that? They're going to find it less than, they're going to find it unwise, they're going to find it ludicrous, or the most direct translation of folly, stupid. They're going to think it's stupid. Or maybe this, it's okay to be kind of Christian, especially in our context. You're not going to, you're going to, it's going to be very rare for you to find someone who outright thinks you're stupid for being a Christian. But, but here's the expectation. Just sprinkle a little Jesus on your life, but don't take it any further than that. That it's okay to kind of follow Jesus, to kind of identify with the cross. But if that's going to be the thing that most defines you, most shapes you, most sets a trajectory of how you live your life, well, that's stupid. That's unwise. That's folly. That's foolishness. Is that the thing that shapes your identity and your ethics and how you spend money and how you parent and how you're in your marriage and how you vote and on and on and on and on? Well, that is utter folly. Why? Why, why does the worldly wisdom, why does the wisdom of this world find the cross foolish? Well, first, let's recognize this goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the, where the problem started. In Genesis 3, we see that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, when humanity fell into sin, one of the driving motivations of their heart was this, they wanted to be wise. They wanted to find wisdom apart from God. And so they were drawn in by the lure of wisdom. Hey, you can be wise and you don't need God to do it. You can define wisdom for yourself. And so Adam and Eve, and then all of us along with them decided, we're going to do this. We're going to find wisdom in our own eye. We're going to, on our own. We're going to 
We don't need God to tell us what is wise and unwise. I mean, God's fine to stick around a little bit, but the thing that most determines how I'm going to live, well, I'm going to define that myself. And so since that time, we have been chasing a wisdom of our own design. We have been in rebellion against God. We have said, God, I don't need your wisdom. I am fine on my own. And look, times may change. The the labels that we put on our wisdom may change from society to society and culture to culture and generation after generation. But at the heart of all of that wisdom is the same thing. Exaltation of self. Exaltation of us and our wisdom, our autonomy, our authority. A wisdom that allows us to get what we want, the power, the control, the status that we want. That's why the wisdom of this world is going to be against God because if the cross is God's wisdom, then worldly wisdom is going to oppose it. But then in verse 22, the apostle Paul captures sort of the major strands of worldly wisdom that was both inundating the Corinthian church, but also is true for us today. Well, we're gonna see that things really haven't changed. This is what he writes in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So the Jews, for all of their religious devotion, they actually were given over to worldly wisdom. See, the Jews, they, they wanted, they wanted signs. They wanted for God to sort of flex his power. And they wanted him to do that for their good. In this way, God, we're looking for the signs that you're bringing the kingdom back to us. God, we want you to put your power on display so that we get our kingdom back. Will you establish our earthly kingdom? Put us back in power. And so they demanded signs. You see this all over the gospels. The Jews kept, kept doing this to Jesus. Give us a sign you're the Messiah. Give us the sign you're from God. Give us a sign that you're going to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. For them, the only sign that was acceptable was a show of power. It was a sign that gave them power, that demonstrated, hey, you're going to get earthly kingdom political power. Does this not still reflect some of the religious wisdom of our day? Is there not a prevailing religious wisdom that sees the power of God through the lens of political power? Like we want God to flex so that our political party can be in control. We want God to give us a display of his power so that our ways, our kingdom, our nation, whatever it is, has the power and the control. We want God's power to manifest itself in our power, in our control. Or maybe to give this a less political sort of application. We want God to make us happy. We want God to follow our agenda. We want God to be about our goals, our dreams, our aspirations. We want God's existence. We want God's priority to be our priorities. And so we ask for God to show his power in such a way that we get power and control and benefit. We get comfort and security. We get status. We get wealth. Whatever it is that we want, we want God's power to sort of get behind that agenda. And so we have a religious wisdom that puts God in a box in the sense that God, you serve my needs. You serve my agenda. God, I, I want you 
to meet my expectations. God, if I perform enough, if I do enough good, well, then I deserve it. Or please, won't you? I wonder whether it's political or whether it's just your own agendas. Is this the religious wisdom that controls you, that shapes you, that has your heart? Is this the religious wisdom that you're bent toward? Because friends, if this is the religious wisdom that has your heart, if this is the religious wisdom that shapes you, the cross will be folly to you. If this is the religious wisdom that you desire, then the cross will be foolishness to you. The Jews were looking for a sign of power. So when a lowly, humble, unimpressive man from Galilee comes claiming to be the Messiah and he says he will and ultimately is crucified on a Roman cross, that's the last sign in the world they expected to be God's display of power. The cross is the opposite of power. The cross doesn't build a kingdom, at least not here on earth. The cross is what losers get, not what kings get. The cross to the Jews is a shameful, humiliating experience. God's word even says, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. So there is no way the Jews were going to see a cross as the sign of power. This is why Paul also says in verse 22, that the cross is a stumbling block. In some translations of the Bible, it's scandal. Because the word in Greek literally means scandal. The cross is a scandal. The cross is offensive to Jews offensive to their sensibilities, offensive to the idea that this would be a sign of God. Friends, for religious wisdom that chases power and control and status, even comfort, the cross or the the, the religious wisdom that expects God to fulfill our desires and meet our expectation, the word of the cross will be folly. And while the Jews demand a sign, the Greeks, they seek wisdom. Corinth was one of the great cities of the Roman Empire, and and it was in Greece. You can still go to Corinth today. And as a major city in Greece, it was given over and shaped by the prevailing Greek wisdom of the day. And, And the Greeks prided themselves on their wisdom, their deep understanding of philosophy, the mathematics and astronomy, their ability to use language, both poetically and for debate. Look, the Greeks gave us the great philosophers, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the great poets, Homer and Sophocles, the great mathematicians, Euclid and Archimedes. Like the Greeks were smart people. But the problem isn't knowledge. The apostle Paul isn't anti-knowledge here. Paul was a very educated man. The problem is not us learning. The problem with the Greeks is not that they went out to understand the world. The problem with the Greeks is they sought wisdom as a means to power and control and status. They sought wisdom as a way to live independently, to build their own kingdom. The problem with the Greeks is they were after this good life. They they were after the, the power and control and status and success that they believed wisdom would give them. And so for them, wisdom was about achieving the good life, the comfortable life, the successful life, the well-regarded life, the philosophically deep life. They were after whatever insight, whatever idea gave them greater power or greater wealth or greater success or greater status, greater comfort. You see, they were exalting self through wisdom for all their learning. At the end of that was an exaltation of self. 
And look, for us today, do we not have the benefit of a wealth of knowledge and understanding? I mean, thousands and thousands of years of philosophy and literature and math and sciences, undreamt of technology now at our fingertips. I mean, God's common grace to us abounds. It's a wonderful gift that God has allowed us to learn about this world and make accurate observations about this world. But are we also not like the Greeks, exalting ourself through the pursuit of our wisdom? I mean, listen, does not the prevailing psychological wisdom say heal yourself and find happiness in yourself? Does not the prevailing philosophical wisdom say that the self is whatever you make it, so define yourself however you want? Does not the prevailing biological wisdom say you don't have to be confined to your body. You can use medical technology to change who you are. Does not the prevailing wisdom of pleasure say enjoy all you want because your happiness is the most important? Does not the prevailing relationship wisdom say relationships are for your happiness, so only be with those who make you happy? Does not the prevailing economic wisdom say work is a means to happiness and success, so chase your dreams? Friends, again, is this the wisdom you live by? Is this the wisdom that's shaping your heart and shaping your life? Well, let's just be honest. If so, the cross will be foolish. Like, let's just be honest. The cross will be foolishness to you. The cross will be folly to you. Look, to tell a Greek who is seeking success, wealth, status, and pleasure, and insightful knowledge that, hey, true wisdom, true insight, into ultimate reality, the true path to life, enjoy the true meaning and purpose that is found in a man strung up on an instrument of torture. It's found in a man who is executed as a political criminal. They would have looked at you like you had three heads. They would have been like, are you nuts? That is the last thing in this last place in the world I would ever look for wisdom. It was absolutely insane. And here's the thing for us, living in the Christianized West, like in some ways, the cross has gotten really tame for us. Like, like, full disclosure, I have a cross tattooed on this shoulder right here. Some of you may think that I'm cool. Some of you are probably judging me. My reputation has dropped a little bit. I'm sorry. It was, you know, I was 21, thought it was cool. Anyway, I have a cross tattooed on my shoulder. Some of you have crosses tattooed on different parts of your body. Some of you have cross necklaces, cross earrings. The cross has gotten tame for us. Look, have you ever seen anybody with an electric chair tattooed on their arm? Ladies, do any of you have earrings that dangle electric chairs or necklaces that have electric chairs? No? Why? Because those are instruments of punishment and death. The cross was even worse than an electric chair because the cross, if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. It was that disgusting in their mind, that degrading, that humiliating. The cross communicated something to the Jews and the Greeks that I think is a little bit lost on us in our culture. It was the exact antithesis of everything, everything they believed was wise. And friends, while the cross as a symbol is perhaps been somewhat tamed for us, the cross in the meaning of it is still as scandalous, still as counterintuitive, still as challenging today as it's ever been because the cross fundamentally challenges the exaltation of self. 
The cross fundamentally challenges us in our attempt to find wisdom on our own. The essence of worldly wisdom is the exaltation of self. And the cross communicates a level of humility and lowliness and shame that we would never want to face. You see, the cross, in the cross, we don't see the exaltation of self. We see the humiliation of self. The worldly wisdom of our day will never accept the word of the cross because it completely confronts and opposes. It's the antithesis of the exaltation of self. That's why the word of the cross is folly to the worldly wisdom of the day. Why it's folly to those who are perishing. Because it is the antithesis of everything that the philosophy of this world is built upon. The worldly wisdom versus the cross. Let's now flip this around and look at the cross versus worldly wisdom. What does the cross, so, so worldly wisdom views the cross as folly, but what does the cross do to worldly wisdom? Let's look again at verses 18 through 20. Paul writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Look, the world exalts itself. It says, trust in yourself. Trust in your own power, your own intelligence, your own strategy. Make yourself the center. But what does Paul say God is going to do with that wisdom? He's going to destroy it. The wise, insightful things that the world says it sees and believes and points you to, God's going to destroy that. The discernment that the world claims that it has, God is going to thwart, meaning he's going to show that it's worthless. He's going to show that you should just set it aside. It's wrong. God is going to end the worldly wisdom. It has a shelf life. It will not last. But then it also says here, or Paul also sort of calls to account. The world has its wisdom. It has its claims to what will make you happy. The world will claim, hey, this is what will give you joy. This is what will give you peace. This is what counts as success. This is where you find meaning and purpose. This is how you get to things like righteousness and justice. Like the world will make claim after claim after claim after claim. But then here's the apostle Paul saying, when it's all said and done, where's the scribe? Where is the wise person? Where is the debater? In other words, where are all the smart people? When all is said and done, where are you at? He's calling them out. He's saying, for all your wisdom, where does that get us? Where has that left us with? Well, let's just consider the world. For all the worldly wisdom through thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, are we any less noble, good, righteous, just, loving? Is our world any more unified? Is there any less killing? Is there any less selfishness? Is there any less abuse of alcohol and drugs? All of the sins we could just stack up, is there any less of it? No. For all of the progress we think we have made in some ways, the world, the wisdom of this world has time and time and time again come up empty. When I think of verse 20, I kind of think of like those, you know, you watch a news program and they bring on the experts. And the experts are going to predict, hey, this is for sure going to happen. Or here's how you need to understand this. And then like a day later, a week later, the expert was so flat wrong. 
but then next week, there they are again, spouting off their expertise. And sometimes I think, why would I listen to this guy when like a week ago he was so sure of himself and then he was wrong? I mean, do these guys ever get fired? But, but this is exactly what the apostle Paul is doing. He, he's calling into account. He's saying, hey, you got these experts that come and say things to you. And time and time and time again, they're wrong. Why would you listen to them? Why would you give them ear? Why would you think that their wisdom is going to actually lead to what it says it's going to lead to? God has shown that the expert, the smart people, the wise, they're foolish. What passes as wisdom in this world is actually foolishness. Friends, for all the wisdom of this world, for for all the times you have given yourself over to the wisdom of this world, where has it led you? Has it made you more hope-filled, more joy-filled, more faith-filled, more godly, more righteous? Does it give you more peace? Has it led you to real forgiveness and freedom from sin? Are you less self-absorbed and more loving? Are you less angry or more angry? Are you more honest or less honest? But even more than that, even more than that, does the wisdom of the world lead you to God? Does it actually lead you to know God? Worship him commune with him, experience him? Does it lead you into the presence of God that you may know him? Paul makes this point that the world, the wisdom of this world, for for whatever common grace elements of truth that it has, because there are aspects of worldly wisdom that can make you more moral, can make you more intelligent, can can give you, can, can help you be more successful in some good ways. But the deeper question of life, does it lead you to God? Does it lead you to absolute truth? Paul says no. Again, in verse 21 and then verses 23 and 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Look, our worldly wisdom will never lead us to God. For in the wisdom of God, it pleased God not to reveal himself through the world's wisdom, but through the folly of preaching the cross. It is only through the cross that we know God. Only through the cross will we have a relationship with God. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out, yes, Pastor Chris also quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer, not just Pastor Paul. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you know why that's funny, some, sorry. (laughs) This is what he writes. If it is I who determine where God is to be found, then I shall always find a God who corresponds to me in some way, who is obliging, who is connected with my own nature. But if God determines where he is to be found, then it will be in a place which is not immediately pleasing to my nature. This place is the cross of Christ. Like if I determine where I want to find God, then I'm always going to chase worldly wisdom because I want a God of my own design. But if I want to find God where he's truly found, where he says he will be, then I need to look to the cross. I need to look to the cross because that is where I can know God. Because here is the good news. 
uh, underneath all the confrontation that Paul is pushing forward to these Corinthians and he pushes on us. Here is the good news embedded in these verses. What the wisdom of this world is powerless to do, the cross is abundantly powerful to do. What the wisdom of the world can never accomplish in your life, the cross can and does accomplish in your life. When we look to Christ crucified, we don't exalt self. We humble ourselves. We see our sin and we see the judgment and the wrath and the punishment we deserve. We don't exalt self. We're, we're humbled at the foot of the cross. But then on the cross, we see Jesus taking the humiliation that should be ours, taking the wrath and the judgment that should be ours, taking the shame that should be ours on ourself, on himself for you and for me. On the cross, we see that salvation only comes through death to self and death to sin. On the cross though, here's what we see. The love of God for sinners that God the Father would send the Son to come and be humiliated in our place. The King of glory who dwells in unapproachable light, the the most beloved treasure of the Father's heart, steps into our world and becomes a man. And he comes not as a conquering king, but as a humble servant, so humble, he will subject himself to the worst torture and murder man has ever devised. The most shameful form of execution for you and for me to pay the penalty of our sin. On the cross, we see the love of God. On the cross, we see the salvation of God. On the cross, we see that God abundantly, abundantly pours out his love on sinners, not because you and I have done anything. We didn't deserve it. We deserve to be on that cross. We deserve the humiliation and the judgment and the shame. But Jesus took it for us. Jesus took it for us so that we could experience the love of God. So we look to the cross and we see the love of God. But we also see the power of God because on the cross, Jesus took the fullness of the punishment of God. He took the fullness of the wrath and he paid our debt in full. On the cross, this guilt of sin was paid completely. The guilt of sin, of your sin and mine, completely paid for so that we can be fully forgiven and free. That is the power of the cross. It pays for sin. Christ took our, in his death, Christ took our sin to the grave and he left it there. Here is the power of the cross. When Christ went in to the grave, your sin went there. And when he rose in resurrected power, he left it there. But when Jesus rose in resurrected life, you who are in Christ, you were raised to new life as Romans 6 says. The power of the cross is new life for you. The power of God in your life is new life. If you are living under the wisdom of the cross, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you are united to Christ, then you have his power at work in your life. You've been forgiven. You've been set free. The spirit is at work redeeming and renewing you. That is what the cross does. Not worldly wisdom, the cross. God's power to save us, God's power to renew us. And one day when Jesus comes back, renew all things. This is the power of the cross. What what, what power we see and what wisdom do we see? Look, on the cross, we see the wise plan of God, a plan that you and I 
would never come up with. Look, just, just consider this for a second. If you were to devise a plan of salvation, would you come up with a cross? Would I come up with a cross? No, why? Because the cross is far too humble for us. We don't think that humbly. We don't think that lowly. We don't think that lovingly and that graciously, if we're honest. The wisdom of God in the cross puts on the full display of his love and his grace and his power and his plan to renew and redeem all things. Look, we'd never conceive of the cross ourselves because we'd never see death to self as a path to life. Yet that is freedom and that is life. What wisdom that we see on the cross. The world exalts self. It looks to its own wisdom for salvation, but we, we look to Christ. We look to Christ for our wisdom and for our power. And so church, Look, if we're going to live united, if we're going to be a united church, First City Church, if we're going to walk in spiritual maturity, holiness, love, service, sacrifice, mission, then our lives must be brought under the wisdom of the cross. We must reject worldly wisdom and not allow it to shape our hearts and we must be fully transformed and fully given over but to the wisdom of the cross. And this is a wisdom that humbles us. This is a wisdom where we don't exalt self, we humble ourselves before the Lord. We're not self-reliant, we're dependent. We're not self-exalting, rather we're serving and we're loving. The wisdom of the cross saves us and transforms us, but it also leads us in a pathway of life that is humble and gracious and merciful, that puts others before ourselves, that doesn't see the end all and be all of life of me and self and self-exaltation in my happiness. No, it's the glory of God and the good of others. Yes, we will experience happiness. Yes, we will experience joy. Yes, we will experience peace. But that comes through the cross, through death to self, death to sin, losing our life that we might find it. This is a counterintuitive, upside-down kingdom mentality, church. But it is and must be what shapes us if we are to walk as God has called us to walk. And so friends, brothers and sisters, let us live in the wisdom of the cross. Let's pray.